We're going to fast forward a bit. We've been in a series on the life of David, and we're going to continue there for a while. But as we do so, and as we, we move forward with what's happening, again, I want, to, I want to fast forward. There's lots of interesting stories that we've missed between 1 Samuel chapter 25, which is where we were last time. David was with Abigail. And now we've moved all the way forward to 2 Samuel. We're in chapter 6 and 7 as we kind of look at the story that happens in between those two. I read to you from the beginning of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. All these interesting stories take place. We just don't have the time to necessarily cover all of them. So let me catch you up just a bit. Again, I'm not even going to close to try and get it all, but let me, let me summarize. David is still on the run from Saul. That was the case when we were here before. David was on the run. He was hiding away so that Saul wouldn't find him. And that continued for a long time. There's stories of him hiding in caves. We know he was hiding when he was near Abigail's, uh, Abigail and her husband, Nabon's, um, sheep, those shepherds. Uh, and that continues for a long time as they continue to be on the hide from, on the, on the run, hiding from Saul, knowing that Saul is after them. We also see that, that in this time of hiding, that there were a couple of opportunities, several opportunities, where David actually had the opportunity to kill Saul, to take the throne, to take it away, which would have been the normal mode of moving from king to king. In fact, all the men that, that were around David said, well, kill him, take him, take this, this chance. But David refused every time. He refused to do so, believing that that was not the way in which God wanted to move God's promise forward. First Samuel chapter 31, we get to and we find out that Saul and Jonathan, Jonathan is Saul's son, a great friend of David. When David was working with the king, Saul and Jonathan were killed. There is this incredible response, at least to me it's incredible, and, and I don't even fully understand it, but the response that comes from David and his men when Saul dies is that together they grieved. They grieved that their king had died. This man who had caused them such trouble, such difficulty, such uh, stress and pressure, they grieved that he died. Again, I think that's an incredible testimony to the character of David. We see lots of flaws in other places, but there we see this incredible testimony. And yet even after Saul's death, David doesn't immediately become the king, become the king of Israel, which is what we might expect. Samuel is anointed David, the next king of Israel. Saul dies. Who's going to be the king? Well, David is, but that's not exactly the way it happens. We see as we read the story that David is appointed king over part of Israel over over this separated Israel that's taken place David becomes king of Judah and one of Saul's sons becomes king of the other portion of what is still called Israel and there's this ongoing difficulty, this ongoing strife that takes place between those who are loyal to Saul and his family and those who are loyal to David and the idea that David's going to be the next king. And it's, it creates this tension and this stress and this constant pressure between God's people of trying to decide what they will do, who they will follow, who it is that they will be faithful to. And it's not until 2 Samuel chapter 5... That David is eventually appointed as king over all of the kingdom of Israel. And there's this thing that we've seen, this, this reality, this, this 
piece of who David is that I feel like we've watched all throughout David's life as we looked at him right now is that David, as king and even before so, continued to accomplish incredible things. Over and over again, time and time again, we watch as David proved his greatness to himself and to others. We see that when he proved his greatness to Saul, what was the response? Jealousy. Saul was jealous of David is what the scriptures tell us. When he proved his greatness to Jonathan, he and Jonathan became great friends. And Jonathan basically handed over his own rights to the throne, his own rights to be king after his father Saul. When David proved his greatness to the Israelites, the Israelites responded with a, a form of worship and of praise towards David. Not necessarily making him an idol, but lifting him up. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 7, this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. When David proved his greatness to outcasts in the community, those who had been driven out for one reason or another, they grew more and more loyal to David and were told that they even tracked him down. They found him hiding in caves and they joined his army because they wanted to be a part of what he was doing. David was a great man. David was a great leader. David was the kind of man that other people longed to follow. So much so that rather than following the king on the throne, there were people that were rushing out into the wilderness looking for a man hiding in caves so that they could join him in what he was doing. And yet, David was not supposed to be this guy. You remember from the stories that we've covered, but also from the passage that we read in 2 Samuel chapter 17, as God was speaking to Nathan, there's this reminder of where David come, came from, of his roots, of his beginnings. David started in the fields. David was just a shepherd boy. He was the least respected. He was the least appreciated in his entire family. He was the runt. He was the baby brother. But somehow it seems that these humble beginnings planted some kind of drive in him. Some kind of desire that even though he started from such a low position, there was this longing and this desire, this push to overachieve, to overaccomplish. As a shepherd, which is where we see him start we find out that he was more than just a common shepherd. David did more than just watch his sheep. In fact, the scriptures tell us that when a lion or a bear would come and would take one of them, that he would chase them down and he would beat the life out of them and take back the lamb. That's, that, that's not the typical response to a shepherd. They get the other ones out of harm's way. But David rushed out after the one, taking it over. We see as he spoke to Saul, as he was volunteering to go up against Goliath, this giant that every other Israelite was afraid to stand against, all of the army afraid of. But the shepherd boy shows up, and this is what he says to Saul. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw. And club it to death. David wanted to prove he was a great shepherd. Not just a shepherd. I think the truth is David wanted to prove that he was more than a shepherd. 
As David becomes king, I think that we see the same tendency in him. We see the same form of working, the same method of, of overworking, of overachieving, of overaccomplishing. Uh, over David wasn't satisfied as simply being king. David needed to be a great king. David wanted to prove his worth. David wanted to leave a legacy behind. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to to desire to do great things, to long for great things. In fact, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the idea that God has created each of us to do incredible things. God has created us for greatness. God has created us with beautiful dreams and intentions for who we will become and what we will do. God has created us and then invited us to be partners with God in furthering the work of the kingdom of God. Incredible, great things. And yet, we always have to remember How easy it is for our own ambition to distort the calling that God has placed on our life to do incredible things. Because sometimes our pursuit of greatness can become more about self-aggrandizement than anything else. More about building up ourselves. More about looking good. More about accomplishing things. Sometimes our walk towards greatness have nothing to do with faithfulness to God, but instead are sparked and stirred and pushed forward by our own selfish pride. There's this incredible paradox in the greatness of God. Paradox, the idea that these two things exist at the same time and yet it doesn't make sense that they should. These two things that exist at the same time, that the greatness of God is far far more than you and I could ever dream or imagine. That What God intends of us, far more than we could ever dream or imagine. And at the exact same time, far from selfish pride and personal ambition. This great life that God has called us into, this greatness, these incredible things God has called us to do are actually less about our own personal striving and more about our faithfulness to God. It's less about our proving our own abilities and more about our willingness to surrender to the desires of God in our life. Now, again, as we talk about paradox and this weird back and forth, it's always difficult to explain. That doesn't release us from expectations. That doesn't release us from the need to work. That doesn't release us from effort. All of that is still a part of it. But here's what is different. Here's what changes. Here's what we sometimes miss in our desire to do great things is that we don't have to prove our worth or our value to God. Friends... As far as God is concerned, you already have incredible worth and value. You don't have to accomplish anything to prove that that's the case. You don't have to accomplish anything to have worth and value in the eyes of God. I think we struggle with that. I think David struggled with that. 
I think David wanted to prove to God that God had made the right choice in making this shepherd boy king. I think he wanted to work hard to prove to God, God, everybody else says you've made a mistake. My brother said it was the wrong guy. My dad wasn't sure what you were doing. He didn't even invite me. So many people are uncertain as to whether or not you've made a right decision. But I believe David wanted to prove to God that God had not made a mistake. And we see that begin with this idea of him moving the ark to Jerusalem. That happens in chapter 6. We didn't read that piece, but that happens in chapter 6 as David and his people moved the ark into Jerusalem, which was an incredible act as far as the Israelites were concerned. This is something they've been hoping for and longing for for generations. The ark, this, this box, if you go back and you read the stories of Moses, if you look at Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all of those stories, you'll find an explanation of what the ark is. But to simplify it, the ark represented the physical presence of God. They believed this was where God was. God was in, with, on. God was the ark. So where the ark was, God was. Now, again, huge oversimplification. You'd have to study a lot more to grasp the whole thing, but that's kind of a summary. And the passage, the scriptures tell us that for 20 years, the ark had been at a man's house. It hadn't been among the Israelites. It hadn't been among the people. It had been at one man's house. And we're told that this man received incredible blessing because the ark was there. But the people of God believed that they'd been left out. They'd been abandoned. They'd been overlooked because the ark was not in their presence. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, it's on the screen. It says, the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim, or however you say that, for a long time. 20 years in all. During that time, all Israel mourned because it seemed the Lord had abandoned them. Now, we could spend a long time talking about their exaggeration and their overlooking the reality of all the great things God had done, but that's not the point. The point is they wanted the ark back among them. They wanted the symbol of God's presence where they were. Believing that God would bring blessing if the ark, if God was back among them. So David did the work of bringing the ark back to the people, back to Jerusalem. And if we read that story, if you read that story, or if you read that story this week, you see that, that, that as he did so, and, and it's very possible that what David did was exactly the right work. It's very possible that this was exactly what the king of Israel should have done, that this was exactly what should have happened. The problem and what we find in the story is that David's personal ambition, his own desires and his longings to get the ark back, I think to prove himself, brought with it incredible disaster. It brought with it damage. It brought with it pain because in their haste, in their personal ambition, in their own desires, they didn't fully follow the commands of God. So there were lives lost because they got careless in what it meant to move the ark back. They weren't willing to follow God in the way in which God was trying to work. We see that David's marriage with Michael, Michael was one of Saul's daughters, David's marriage with Michael was damaged irreparably. That's the, the understanding we get when it says, and Michael had no children. That really has to do with the relationship between the two of them. You got that? I'm not going to explain how babies are made, but... The problem in this is that the ambition got in the way, the desires got in the way. 
I think we see it continue when we get to chapter 7 and we watch this story unfold about David's desire to build God a palace. That's really what it was. It calls it a cedar house. It talks about the tabernacle. It was really a palace. David was bothered with the reality that David lived in this beautiful palace and that God, or the ark, lived in a tent. The tabernacle. David was bothered by that. Sounds like a great thing, doesn't it? That makes sense. It's, it's good that David is bothered by that. But David decided that David wanted to build God a house. David decided that God needed a home at least as great as the king of Israel's home. So he decided he was going to set out to build it. He decided he would be the king who built a house for God. Again, all of this seems so good. It seems so right, so appropriate. But I believe wholeheartedly it was driven by his own selfish ambition, his own desires to prove his worth and his value to God. We see the appearance of Nathan here. We're not going to spend a lot of time on on Nathan today because we're going to come back to Nathan in a few weeks. But when we see Nathan here, we see Nathan come into the story initially as a yes man to David. He's supposed to be the prophet. He's supposed to be the direct contact for the voice of God that comes back to the king. But you notice when David begins to talk about this idea of a house to God, what does Nathan say? He says, sure, whatever you have in your mind, go for it. God is with you. You can do it. Go right ahead. The prophet never bothered asking God what God thought about what David wanted to do. He just said, go ahead. God is with you. Do whatever it is that you have in your mind. Build whatever you want. Thankfully, we see 17 verses later that after this dream in the night, this conversation with God, that Nathan went back to David and he told him, no, you can't build this. This is not what God has in mind. In verse 17, it says, so Nathan went back to David And told him everything the Lord had said in his vision. Ultimately what we see in this is we see that God said no. No, you cannot build a temple. I imagine this was almost unbearable for a man like David. A great leader, a great king, an incredible achiever who had done these significant things all of his life, who was trying to continue in doing these significant things, but God said no. Thankfully, we see that David was faithful to God, that that David didn't move forward in the building of the temple. And I hope... That you and I would be as courageous to do the same. That we would be willing to listen, to stop when God says so. Believing that God's plans are far greater than ours. Even when we don't understand what's happening. That we believe that God's plans are greater than ours. But I also hope that you and I would be willing to do something similar to David. Because I believe... That in these times when God says no, that we have incredible opportunities to learn more about ourselves and to learn more about God in God's nose. 
I want to look at this story specifically. This, this time when God said no. God said, no, David, you cannot build a temple. And, but I believe that what God was saying was far greater than that. It was much more important than that. The lessons that were there that are kind of subtly buried underneath the surface that David needed to learn, I think are the reasons in which God said no to David. Let me point out just a few of them. One. I think God was saying to David, no, I won't be tied down. This house, this, this building, this structure that David wanted to build for the ark would have effectively tied God to a place. It would have lost the intentional portability that God had designed, that God had dreamed up when he told Moses what the ark was to look like, what the tabernacle or the tent was to look like. It was all supposed to be portable and movable. He talked about it as God spoke to Nathan. This was supposed to go from here and there. I am supposed to be able to move with the people of Israel, with the people of God. There was an intentional portability that was designed in what was happening with the ark and with the, with the tabernacle. And I believe that God was not ready to be limited. In fact, I don't think God is ever interested in being limited. I don't think God has any interest in ever being stuck in a building or a place. And although we can say, well, well, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have literally been stuck there. I mean, he's God. He can do what God wants to do. Yes, sure. But in the minds of the people, they would have believed God lives there. God is there. God's not out here because God is there. And it was the idea that God did not want to be stuck in one place. Man, how often do you and I do the exact same thing? How often do we as people and we as a church choose to limit God also? I actually think that many of us, I try to be real careful with the word most. I actually believe that most of us are absolutely terrified of the idea of God on the loose. I think it terrifies us. I think it terrifies us of what God might do if God was on the loose. So instead, we prefer to work in, we prefer God to work in ways that we understand Ways that we can determine, ways that we can define, ways in which we are comfortable. Think about it. Think, think about this, this thing that we do. And, and I'm not necessarily saying this thing is bad, but recognize the parameters that we have put on what we want to happen with God. We want to come and we want to worship on Sunday mornings in a predefined place and a predefined time. We're very concerned about what time it starts and what time it ends. We want to come and make sure that the music that we hear is music that we're comfortable with. Music that we like, music that we prefer, music that we know, music that's easy for us to sing, music that we like. We want to gather with people who we've chosen who we like, who we get along with, who behave the way that we think they're supposed to behave in church, who wear the clothes that we think they're supposed to wear when they're in church. There are all these, I was about to call them unwritten, but I'm not sure they're even unwritten for all of us. There are all these little rules that we've created around what it means for us to gather as the church, what it means for us to come together on Sunday morning and worship. 
And if someone begins to stretch outside those parameters, outside of the areas in which we're comfortable, in which we understand, then many of us begin to point or we begin to stare. Or maybe we're not quite that audacious. Instead, we just question what they're doing. We doubt them or their faith. Their understanding of God and how God works. Maybe we begin to criticize their methods or chastise their authenticity. We question their understanding of God and the way God works. All these things we've done when people believe that God moves outside of ways in which you and I are comfortable with. Ways that we understand. Ways that we have predefined. Now we've got great biblical arguments for it when we go back to the script. But this is, yes. Yes, but. God is alive and well and moving among us. And while God will not move in contradiction to what the scriptures say, God will move in far greater ways than we imagine possible just by reading this incredible book that God has left us. But I believe that we are terrified of the idea of God on the loose. So sometimes God says no to our dreams so that we can be reminded that God refuses to be tied down or limited. A second thing that, that I notice here. God said no to David in order to say, no, you are not in control. David was king. He gave him great power and authority. He gave him the right and the responsibility to make decisions for other people, to decide where the kingdom would go, to decide what specific people would do. And, and I wonder if we don't see the exact same authority, the exact same power, the exact same understanding of who he is begin to seep into his relationship with God. Begin to seep into what he believes is happening between he and God. You see, David decided to build God a house. Did you see that in the passage? David decided to build God a house and never considered getting God's opinion on the idea. He asked Nathan, and I guess that was supposed to be a substitute for it, but he never went to God and asked for God's opinion on what it meant to build this place. And I would claim... Maybe confess that I, that we, too, are often guilty of trying to play God. That we often make decisions for what it is that God desires. What it is that God desires for us, for ourselves. What it is that God desires for others. What it is that God desires for our church. That we often will come up with the understanding of this is where God wants to go. And then we just pray that God blesses what we've decided God wanted to do in the first place. Many of the ways in which we decide to move forward as a church, many of our church decisions, many of our business decisions, many of our leadership decisions, we make in this kind of cavalier fashion that we will decide and that we hope God will bless it. We often decide what we can and cannot afford as we think about the budget that we're struggling with right now and we're going to struggle with next year. As we think about the budget, we often decide what we can and cannot afford, just like a business would do so. We decide what events we're going to be a part of, what things we're going to do or not do based on customer demand. How popular are they? How many people show up? We decide if we're successful as a church, often 
based only on the numbers of people in the seats on Sunday morning and the numbers of dollars that come in and offering plates. Too often we find ourselves guilty of measuring this thing, this body, this family, this church, exactly the way the world measures every other organization or business. And I believe that it's true that as the church we are supposed to be different We're supposed to be unique. We're supposed to be special. We're supposed to be sacred. It doesn't mean we're supposed to be foolish, but it does mean that there's something different about how we move as a body, how we move as an organization, how we move as a family. And it also means that you and I as individuals, as Christ followers who make up the church, that the same should be true in our own lives. That we have to recognize we are not in control. God is in control of what's happening. So what does it look like for us to sit on our face before God and trust that God will give us wisdom and direction and guidance for the future? Friends, sometimes God says no to our dreams so that we can be reminded God is in control. God will decide what is best for me, for you, for Valley. And we would be wise to listen and follow. A third thing I want to point out. I think that when God said no to David, that God said, no, I will not leave. God changed the covenantal language that was being used with David from what he'd done in the past. He used a different terminology, a different language as he spoke to David. In the past, the covenant always had conditions around it. The kind of language that God used was, if you obey, I will be your God. That's the way that God talked to Abraham. That's the way that God talked to Moses. That was the the contract or the covenant that existed between God and the people of Israel. If you obey, I will be your God. If you follow after me, I will be your God. Here's your job. Here's my job. Here's what it looks like for us to come together in this. But with David... God changed God's language. God began to speak about this relationship, about this bonding, about this covenant in a different way than he had ever done so before. God dropped the conditions from the covenant. And instead of talking about conditions, God switched to using father language. God said, I will be your father. And this change is significant. This change is huge because in this, God is saying as Father, I will never leave you. God is saying as Father that he will walk beside his children. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, it's on the screen. It says, I will be his father and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. This is much of what makes David different than anyone that came before him. Some of you have asked, what's different about David and Saul and the way in which it worked? This is different. God switched the language in which he was using, and he switched it to father language. God looked at David and he said to David, you cannot win me. You have nothing to prove to me. You do not need to keep achieving for me. To David and to us, to the people of God today, to Valley, to the church, God continued and God said, I am 
here. I'm not going anywhere. I will never, ever leave you. I have chosen you as sons and daughters. Church, sometimes God says no to the dreams and the plans that we've made in order to remind us to stop striving to earn God's approval. Because God is not going anywhere. It's to remind us that we can stop trying to earn the approval of others. That we can stop trying to win the approval of friends and family. That we can stop trying to prove ourselves or our worth to anyone. Because this is what God says. God says, I am His. God says, I am chosen. God says, you are His. God says, you are chosen. Valley, God says we are His and we are chosen. I don't think God said no to David in order to be mean, in order to squelch his dreams or his plans. I think God said no to David so that, God, so that David might see God more fully. So that David might become more and more The man after God's own heart. I think that's often true when God says no to us, that he does so, so that we can recognize that that a people after God's own heart is not about what we achieve. It's about our willingness to sit at the feet of the Father. It's about our willingness to be connected with the Savior. It is about allowing ourselves to be gods and fully under the control of God. Friends, God will not be tied down. God is in control. God will never leave us. Will you pray with me? Oh God, our Father, you are great and mighty. You are merciful and loving. You are strong and wise. And we thank you that all of these things are true. Lord Jesus, as we look at the scriptures as we try and think about the parallels between David's life and our own life, I pray that you would give us faith to trust you, courage to follow after you, a willingness to submit ourselves, to surrender ourselves fully to who you are and to what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.